is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Former President Trump, charged with numerous federal crimes, will go in depth into whether the justice system and democracy can survive it all. Getting too involved with artificial intelligence could be bad for your mental health. Also, if you don't like Mondays, you'll hate them even more when we're done. I don't like Mondays. No, you're going to hate them. But I don't really like Tuesday or Wednesday either, so I'm in a jam. Thursday and Friday are on the bub- yeah. on the bubble. So I guess it's like one day I really like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we start, though, with tomorrow's scheduled federal court appearance for former President Trump, Glenn a thrush covers the Justice Department for the New York Times and is in Miami right now reporting on what is a very historic event. Glenn, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So what is the uh, the sort of feel for the place uh, around the courthouse, if you're near the courthouse, right about now? Well, I'm sitting right uh, in the courtyard right now of, uh, of, the, of the federal courthouse in Miami, and it, it looks... It almost has kind of a festival feeling, a lot of white tents with all of the television networks and and wire services, uh, and a lot of people sitting around on camp chairs waiting in line to get in for this, uh, as you said, historic uh, hearing at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Officials have been concerned about the uh, rise of some violent uh, rhetoric leading up to this uh, very similar Uh, and echoing uh, what was seen before January 6th. Do you think, from your vantage point, there's enough security being put into place in case there is trouble? Well, there's a fairly robust security uh, presence around the the courthouse. It's hard to tell precisely what is enough. The the local law enforcement authorities had a press conference uh, earlier today in which they said that they're not going to do the complete lockdown that was done in New York when Alvin Bragg bore charges against uh, Donald Trump. So we'll see if that uh, is the appropriate measure. Um, they felt that the city of Miami was capable of handling it without shutting things down substantially. I can tell you uh, that I know that the courthouse will be, be seeing and hearing other cases tomorrow in addition to Mr. Trump. So they're not uh, completely shutting things down. But as you know, we have seen indications from a Proud Boys related group that were those were some of the people who were convicted in the January 6th attack as well as some other outside folks who are planning at the moment to protest peacefully but um, I think there are concerns clearly that uh, given the passions that are running uh, in this particular instance uh, as to whether or not security is enough. Glenn can you give us a sort of a brief walkthrough on what is supposed to happen beginning at I think it's uh, three o'clock uh, your time. And, and also, if you can address for a moment, there are these uh, reports circulating that Mr. Trump is having trouble or had trouble uh, acquiring a local attorney. Does he need one uh, in federal court? Couldn't pretty much any attorney practice? Yes, I think in general he could have one. I mean, uh, in one of the really extraordinary developments uh, directly after he was our um, directly after he was indicted, his two principal lawyers, uh, James Rowley and James Trustee, uh, quit on him, uh, citing problems with Boris Epstein, who's sort of Trump's political uh, and legal consigliere. So he's essentially heading into this without the two main people who were his, his representatives. He's got a local attorney named Lindsay Halligan, who was also present at the Justice Department a week ago uh, when Jack Smith, the special counsel, had what was a 
pretty tense meeting with the Trump defense team. So he does have an attorney down here. And I can tell you, having spent some time in Miami, there's not a shortage of attorneys who are willing to take on cases. So what happens when so, he, he walks through the door? You know, it's a little bit opaque. Um, people are being uh, um, generally uh, uh, reluctant to discuss the details for security purposes. But essentially, he would be booked, uh, whether that occurs in the U.S. attorney's office. There's an FBI office across town. There are various places where that could happen. And then he is brought into a courtroom where he uh, will be read the charges, very similar to what we were, uh, what was experienced when he was up in New York. All right, Glenn Thrush, and thank then, you and so then much. And he would presumably leave up, uh, nowhere. Sorry. Right, and he's expected to give some statements, uh, at least he's planning to, later in the evening. So that's uh, presumably not uh, being held, uh, going to be released on his own recognizance when he's done. Uh, before we let you go, I have one other quick question. Yeah. The judge he's going to go before tomorrow, is that the same controversial judge assigned to his case, or is this a different one for the purposes of the arraignment? This is a different judge, an administrative judge, for the purposes of the arraignment. But we should say that Judge Cannon... Um, who was reversed by an appeals court uh, in an earlier proceeding involving the president, former president down here, uh, from everything we're understanding, uh, will be the trial judge. Uh, and that came as quite a stunner to the folks over at the Department of Justice, I can tell you. All right. Uh, Glenn Thrush, uh, once again, uh, covering the uh, Justice Department for The New York Times. Right now, though, the federal case against former President Trump is the first of its kind in this country's history. The big question people are asking is whether the legal and political system can survive it when all is said and done. Ken Gormley is the president of Duquesne University. He is also the author of books on the Watergate and the Clinton investigations. Thanks for being with us. The pleasure to be with you both. So there was a, an article uh, I read yesterday, and I think you may have even been quoted in it in the New York Times, that basically said the trial of Donald Trump coming up uh, is really a trial of the American criminal justice system, whether or not it is capable of handling this. I think I pretty much got that article right in terms of what it was saying. So my question to you is, what's the answer? Well, yes, it was a great article written by Peter Baker, who's uh, had a lot of experience in this realm, too. So as you pointed out, I've written books on Watergate, on the Clinton scandals. Uh, I wrote a book on presidents in the Constitution, a chapter on every president. And so if you look at the span of time, there have been actually quite a few number of cases involving allegations against presidents and now former presidents throughout history. You had the Teapot Dome scandal back in the 1920s with Warren Harding, then Nixon, Clinton, uh, during the Trump presidency and now in his post-presidency. And in all of them, you really see that the criminal justice system ends up working it out uh, in a in a sort of proper way. Uh, this is definitely something different. A trial, a criminal trial of a former president will be a first. But you do, don't forget, I mean, you have a system in place. You have judges, jurors, rules in place. Uh, that do a good job in general in yes, but... reaching effective results. The biggest question, actually, for me, and I've written on this separately, is uh, you know if he were if former President Trump were elected again president, and then after an office convicted of a crime, which could happen with all of these different 
indictment. Yes, could he serve uh, as could he still serve as president? Is I think what you're going to say. Well, yeah, I mean, but but, 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 is, but that's Ken, something wanna... we've never right never dealt with because the federal crimes he could potentially just not perceive. You know, he could get his attorney general to drop or whatever, but not so with the state crimes. And so that leads to the scenario, frankly, we never sat around and thought about before. And that is, you know, do you have a president governing right. from jail? That That's uh, <laughs> All right, but, a but Ken, constitutional nightmare. Got it. But I want to go back to, because what you said before, and, and that's what I really want to focus on, is the cases that you were talking about in this country's history, uh, while they may have involved former presidents and present at the time day politicians, there is one key difference, is there not? And that is that people weren't in those cases actually questioning the system itself. They may have questioned the charges that were brought against these individuals that you ticked off, but they weren't actually taking uh, to task the actual system. Whereas here you have people who and, and powerful political uh, people at that who are saying this is nothing more than a political trial, this is akin to the things we see in banana republics. That is different, isn't it? Uh, not exactly. Uh, I mean, you had a certain amount of that, quite honestly, in Watergate. Don't forget, President Nixon was a extremely popular president as that was going on, and it really wasn't until the Supreme Court decided U.S. v. Nixon and he had to give up those tapes that had the smoking guns that he lost all credibility. But up until then, you had a lot of people questioning uh, Archibald Cox. And I wrote his biography, the special prosecutor's investigation, saying he was a Kennedy appoint, you know, a Kennedy person who was biased. And then certainly in the Clinton matter, which I wrote a book on uh, the death of American virtue, Clinton versus Starr, you had a lot of uh, people on both sides pointing fingers and the the supporters of President Clinton were saying Ken Starr was politically biased. This whole thing was a, you know, in effect a witch hunt. You had the 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 people supporting the the Republican effort to, uh, you know, to have him impeached and and driven out of office, saying that he was corrupt and everything. So actually, it's not exactly new. It's 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 a little bit um, a heightened hyper-political environment that we're in, but it truly isn't a lot different than what we have confronted in the past. Let me ask you, uh, Ken, before we go, uh, we're asking the question, can the Justice Department or democracy survive a uh, the charging and potential trial of a former president? But uh, what about the reverse of that question? Could the justice system and democracy survive if, given the credible evidence against him, the former president were not charged? Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, in general, people people are uh, pretty reasonable when it comes to accepting the outcome of some, uh, a process if they know that the rules are fair that were in place. I think that you could have general uh, acceptance of the result one way or the other. Quite honestly, I think the biggest issue has to do with was, whether President Trump is able to get back in office. I think uh, that is the biggest issue weighing on people on both sides. If he is not successful in uh, being renominated or elected, I think a lot of this tension will go away because that's ultimately what is driving much of it. But in the end, I think people are good. I've seen many juries in my career 
reach decisions and people may not like them, but they walk away knowing that the system was fair and worked. And I think we're going to see that in the end here. All right. Uh, Ken Gormley, president of uh, Duquesne University. And Charles, you know, potentially what's on the ballot in 2024, depending on how the uh, nomination process goes, is uh, the question of whether Donald Trump uh, could potentially go to prison or not. And a little bit later on, more evidence that Monday, which happens to be today, today is the worst day of the week. All right. Right now, though, the L.A. Times found people failed to completely listen to Governor Newsom when he asked everyone to cut their water usage by 15 percent. Kelly Sanders is an engineering professor at USC who researches how energy production and uh, consumption affect water resources. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the governor asked for 15 percent. California gave him what? Uh, we got about 7 percent, I believe. So why uh, why did we not rise to the challenge, so to speak? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think that California as a state has spent, you know, the better part of a decade in a quote-unquote unprecedented drought. And after a while, I think our minds become a little desensitized to this type of language. You know, we saw this so clearly with COVID. It's really hard to keep our mindset in a state of crisis for an extended amount of time. Um, and the other thing to, to keep in mind is we've just made a tremendous amount of progress in the last three decades in terms of water conservation across the state. So we've implemented low flow shower heads and low flow toilets, and that has decreased our water consumption precipitously. Um, and once you implement those water fixtures, you know, the water savings are pretty much baked in. So now we're to the point where it gets harder. About half of our urban water use is indoors, and there's not that much we can do at this point to change that. Like, yes, we should take shorter showers. Yes, we should turn off the faucets. Um, but really where the gains remain are in our outdoor water use, which is the other half of our urban water consumption. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Kelly, I, yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, that 7% figure is, I guess, an average for the state. And I'm wondering, do we know which demographic groups, because I'm guessing that some probably did or maybe even exceeded the governor's 15% request while others were woefully below it, and then it, you get up, you know, you come up with that 7% average. Do we know how it distributed? Yeah, so some parts of the states um, did achieve the goal, and other parts of the states didn't do so well on the goal. And, you know, some of those savings, you know, the um, the winners and the losers, if you will, um, they have to be contextualized, you know. So, for example, a power plant, shut down in one district. And so their water conservation looks really good, where in another part of the state, um, a water recycling facility had some issues. And so there, they had to lean more on potable supplies. So their water conservation efforts looked worse. Um, so depending on where you are in the state, you definitely see um, shifts in terms of how we did. And Kelly, you talked about uh, people kind of tired of living in constant crisis mode. Uh, it looks like, at least for now, as far as uh, uh, 
the drought is concerned, we've got water. People kind of feel like we had a wet winter. We've got more wet weather on the way. It seems to be staying gray for a long time. This summer might be uh, wet, and we get into the wet winter on the way if the El Nino pattern holds. Uh, do you think it might be easier down the road if we do face another drought to go back into crisis mode because people will have gotten a break? Well, I think right now, you know, kind of the crisis mode is lifting in a lot of people's minds. We all went through the the rains and, you know, some of us are seeing the reservoirs rise um, around us. Um, but, you know, to, to use an overused analogy, you know, if you think about this as kind of um, your bank account, we've been overdrafting on savings for years and years in the form of groundwater aquifers. Um, and while it absolutely helps that we had a really rainy winter and it looks like we're probably going to have another rainy season ahead of us, um, it's really just a drop in the bucket in terms of deplete or replenishing some of those depleted groundwater savings. So we really have to start thinking about, you know, what are the long-term modifications that we're going to make across the state, um, to get our supply and our demand more in balance. All right. Kelly Sanders, thank you so much. Engineering professor at USC. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Too much time with artificial intelligence might take a toll on your mental health. Yeah, a new study published by the American Psychological Association says AI researchers are risking their mental and emotional health. Jenny Wu is a researcher and lecturer at UC Irvine. She's also the founder and CEO of Mind, Brain, Emotion, which helps build people's emotional intelligence. Jenny, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So why would uh, somebody who is a researcher involved with artificial intelligence risk their own mental and emotional health? Sure. So certainly we are seeing an increase of AI integration in the workplace. And, you know, for, from this research, they found that AI researchers, but also really what they mean by that is AI engineers, um, as well as even real estate consultants who work a lot with AI systems. And, you know, you can imagine the typical water cooler conversations and interactions with human coworkers are less existent when you are allocated and to working with computer screens. And so what um, the study hot off the press has really found is the mental health has taken an impact and predominantly because of an increased sense of loneliness um, by these AI researchers and workers, which really actually um, generates some pros and cons out of that, which we can talk more about. Pro, you know, to summarize being wanting to help other co-workers, wanting to reach out. But on the flip side, from a personal standpoint, uh, these workers do go home and we see an increase in insomnia as well as the need uh, to consume alcohol. So could this be connected to the uh, fact that we saw a couple of uh, engineers who've been working uh, directly on AI programs for a while come out and suddenly want to quit their jobs and say that AI is sentient, uh, it's too late? for humanity. Could that be a part of this if, if it maybe all that, that deep, deep work affected their mental health and outlook and maybe they see things as they really aren't? Yeah, it certainly could be. Uh, what is really interesting from, this is really a study of 
four separate studies. And some of these studies actually include those who work with AI for merely about two years on average. And they're engineers, but not necessarily, you know, top of the podium and really bend deeply into the field. So that is a bit concerning, right? In the sense that it, it could apply to any one of us, right, an engineering job, real estate job in this case. And they also looked at folks in operations um, as well. So are we heading for a future where people who work with AI and come down with mental and emotional health issues because of it end up being helped by AI programs? <laughs> yeah, that is ironic, isn't it? Um it is inconclusive. And of course, I also want to take a step back and saying that this is one of the first uh, research study that really looking at the short term um, impacts of AI. And so more needs to become to really determine that. And of course, we also wonder, right, um, I think the average age of some of a lot of uh, folks in the sample are, I would say, between 34 to maybe 40 years old. And so you also wonder for those who are truly digital natives, right? And those who, not just AI, you know, they lived and bore in social media and just this heavy influence of, of screens and computers and algorithms, right? How that might be. But, you know, and on the topic of your question, could AI help with mental health? That is also uh, inconclusive. And if anything, the study shows that we as human beings are social creatures and we certainly need um, the types of human social interaction in order to survive and thrive. Uh, very quickly before we let you go, is there a possibility that one day into our uh, mental health expert handbooks could go something called AI psychosis? Right. Yes. You never know. Um, I think uh, with more and more of these types of reports and um, what we see in terms of trends and mental health disorders and needs, certainly there could be something coming that we are not aware of. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Jenny Wu, researcher and lecturer at UC Irvine. Well, let's see. Uh, going through the days of the week, mm -hmm. um, Tuesday is not so bad. Mm, yep. Uh, Wednesday is good because it's just kind of halfway right, right, right. there. Yeah. Almost at the weekend. Thursday, no one cares. Yeah. Uh, Friday yeah. is really good because it's the weekend. Fewer people care. Fewer, yeah. Saturday yeah. is great. Yeah. Saturday Saturday, great. I love Saturday. Sunday is mm. half and half. Yeah. And and the other half that's not so good yeah. is because the next day is right. Monday. And that right. brings us to today because Monday, it turns out, there may be a reason you should dislike it. Some new researchers in Ireland say it might be the most common day for fatal heart attacks. So not only does Monday suck, it could it's kill you. Also <laughs> fatal. It could kill you. <laughs> With us is Dr. Yu Ming Ni, cardiologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in uh, Fountain Valley. He's done some research on this uh, himself. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So is it true that uh, you have uh, more fatal heart attacks on Monday? And if so, uh, why would that beyond what I would assume to be the obvious answer? Yeah, you know, it's a very uh, interesting finding. Um, you know, it, it, it speaks to sort of the stress of the upcoming work week. Um, we know that, uh, you know, stress can correlate with, um, you know, uh, challenges with uh, destabilizing plaque in, in, the, in the arteries of the heart. Plaque is what leads to heart attacks. So if it becomes unstable, um, that's how you get a heart attack and end up in the cath lab. Um, yes, uh, this finding has been known for a while. In fact, uh, 
we've also there's been research looking at um, sudden death, uh, people who, you know, are found, you know, unresponsive, you know, out uh, out in the community, they're brought into the hospital. Um, and in those situations, it seems to also be uh, related to uh, Sundays and Mondays, um, you know, and 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 I think that uh, seems to be the 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 trend is there's that uh, stress uh, trigger uh, on 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 Mondays that uh, that is most likely contributing. And is this pretty universal? Uh, yeah, it, it certainly seems like it. I mean, this this study was these studies were done. Um, you know, now you know we've seen that finding here in America. You know, also now in in Ireland. You know, I would I would imagine, you know, in in populations where you have pretty standard five day work weeks, you probably have very similar findings. And even if not the case, I, I imagine you might find this. Uh, you know, with more, shall we say, uh, non traditional, um, you know, work uh, work patterns. Um, I suspect you might find these findings as well. All right. So some countries are experimenting with a four-day work week. And uh, let's say we do that here. We get rid of Monday. Uh, the joke would then be, well, then Tuesday becomes a bad day because that's that's in your first day. But maybe not only because of the factor of having three days off. Would that help the Tuesday not to become the second Monday if we did that? That's a great question. I, I, I suspect the pattern might continue. You still might have Tuesday um, as the more prevalent uh, time for uh, heart attacks, but perhaps less in total number. I mean, we, this experiment is largely because of well-known, you know, work stressors, you know, difficulties with an an adequate work-life balance, Um, you know, and, and I do think that it's something worth investigating further. Couldn't we just take our calendars and cross off Mondays and save lives? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I only wish. <laughs> well, you know what the answer is going to be? Uh, there's going to be some smart person in the government who's going to say, oh, well, I do agree that there is a health problem with Mondays and Mondays is bad. So what we're going to do is change the name. That wouldn't help with it. <laughs> Probably not. But I will say that there are things that you can do as, you know, uh, as as someone who's perhaps experiencing stress leading up to the work week. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, there are some things you can't control, like uh, the day of the week, but uh, perhaps you can control sort of the outlook that you have on your work week, um, you know, finding ways to, you know, make the job enjoyable, you know, having projects that that are, are you know, worth pursuing for you or ways in which you can improve um, the way in which you do your work. Um, these things are all important. And and part of it is having, you know, having a sense of of ownership of the work that you do, right? And And the work that you do, Every day, at least five days a week, you know, should be something of value to you, right? And for some people, you know, maybe the maybe the that particular job isn't uh, quite the right job for them, and they have to switch roles, you know, within the company or perhaps change jobs entirely. Um, but um, these are things that I think you could, you know, those are the parts that you do have control over, and perhaps can reduce the amount of stress that you experience uh, on a weekly basis. Do you work Monday through Friday? Um, as a cardiologist, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's supposed to be five days a week, but then we also take call on the weekends. Sure. Uh, so I think for cardiologists, it'd be hard to say what our patterns are going to be like, but, uh, it is, say, it is a high stress job after all. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> do you dread Monday in particular or is every day? <laughs> yeah. Because more people are having yeah. heart attacks and you got to deal with that. <laughs> well, I mean, that, 
that guess speaks to a little bit of 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 you know what I'm what I've been referring to, which is you know I really do enjoy my job. So money doesn't uh, money isn't so so big a deal uh, for me. I mean I do think that you know it's always nice to be with family and and have an appropriate balance. But I you know most most weeks I feel like I'm ready to go on Monday and, and well, get I, back I, to work. I think there are some people that would say work life balance, and they would they would tend to lean more towards work given you know how their family is. Mm-hmm. That's not me, right? And I don't think see, it's Charles. See, see I, I don't think it has anything to do with work. I, right. I think it's because Sunday you get no mail delivery. Right. And Monday all the bills come. Right. <laughs> you, the you, mail. Yeah, it's the it's mail. It's the mail. You open up the mailbox and it's all those bills. Wasn't so. the day or the week at all. Yeah, no, no, no. All it's right. just well, that. Yeah. And, and also, as you know, on uh, on Mondays, you, you get on that uh, on on the 405 or whatever. And then, oh, yeah, that's uh, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. There see, you go. All we right. Said, uh, we solved it. Dr. Yu Ming Ni, cardiologist is at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. By the way, Charles, you know, uh, jobs do have a lot to do with it. Like this job, I, I kind of like it, but it's only temporary. I'm only doing this until I figure out what I want to do. <laughs> and and have you any thoughts? Uh, no, because I, I don't know if I'm going to grow up anytime soon. So I was thinking of like maybe a pretzel stand. Ooh, that sounds like I'll go into that with you. Yeah, uh, I mean pretzel. like mustard and different yeah. kinds of... And of, frozen uh, bananas. Accrued, frozen bananas don't go with pretzels. <laughs> Frozen they could bananas? if you make them. That's it for KDS and Def. We'll be back tomorrow at one. And t- that's Tuesday.